Welcome to God is Open. I am your host, Christopher Fisher. Today on God is Open, we are going to be talking about problematic Bible verses. These are just going to be Bible verses that people kind of skip over because they don't fit very well within systematizing the Bible or they don't fit very well with classical understandings about who God is and God's character. These are the type of verses that you might see atheists turn to. And Christians, by and large, don't know that they exist. And if they do know that they exist, they just kind of want to skip over them. Sometimes with these verses, these verses are so awkward and ill-fitting to systematic theology that the Calvinist, the traditional classical theist, are going to turn to these verses and say, look, even you have to reject these verses. And so when I reject your verses, it's kind of equivalent. So I reject these verses over here. You reject the same verses. And then I reject your verses. And so you should see that there's precedence for rejecting these verses. Of course, that is a total logical fallacy that's a youtube fallacy that's saying just because you're inconsistent or you take things in different manners that gives me warrant too that's not an actual argument on why we should take something or not take that thing i'm going to give you an example of this this is bruce ware and he's talking about genesis 18 and genesis 18 has an interesting verse i'll just kind of quote bruce ware because he quotes the verse we read Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to that outcry that has come to me, and if not, I will know. And here's what Bruce Ware says. He says, Open theists insist that the language about God learning from what happens ought to be taken literally or in a straightforward manner. Well, consider what we would end up with from this passage if we follow this openness approach. First, we'd have to deny that God is omnipresent, everywhere, present, because God says he has to go down and see if what he has heard is true. This indicates on a straightforward reading, and straightforward in quotes and in Ware's writing, that until God gets to Sodom, he cannot know whether the reports he has heard are correct. Second, we'd have to deny that God knows everything about the past, for he has to confirm whether the Sodomites have done these horrible things. Evidently, then, God does not know whether what he has heard about their past actions is true. So he doesn't know the past perfectly. Third, we'd have to deny that God knows everything about the present because he has to go down and see. God doesn't know right now whether the reports are true. Everything Bruce Ware says is technically right, and all his arguments are correct. When you read it, it doesn't look like God knows currently what's happening in Sodom and Gomorrah. And it doesn't look like God knows in the past what has happened in Sodom and Gomorrah. The author of Genesis 18, I don't think, believed that God had present knowledge of what was going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. So how are we going to handle this? How are we going to deal with this type of text? The author pretty clearly doesn't think that God has this present knowledge. We could try to make up some technicality. Yeah, this is just kind of an idiom that we don't know why it's being said like it is. And then we can't explain, if this is just an idiom, if God does know what's currently happening in Sodom and Gomorrah, the entire rest of the chapter doesn't make sense, where Abraham not only interacts with God as if God doesn't know the current number of righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah, but making this text into God actually knows what's happening in Sodom and Gomorrah just invalidates that entire conversation. It invalidates God bringing Abraham into his counsel to advise him. 
because God knows that Abraham will teach his children to follow him and asking his advice as what to do. And then Abraham's advice really affecting God. It turns the story into this this fake story, this fake interaction where it didn't do anything and it's just Abraham asking weird questions about collateral damage. It destroys the story. So what do we do with this text? How do open theists handle it? Some open theists, like the Sanders type, what they're going to do is dismiss this on technicalities. They're going to say, well, this is probably some sort of idiom, probably just meant that he's checking this all out. I don't, I don't think that's a very good treatment of the text. And you're going to see this as a theme in this particular episode of God is Open Podcast. I don't think that's a proper way to deal with some of these weird texts in the Bible. Different individuals, more on the philosophical side of the spectrum, they're going to claim that the author definitely did not think that God knew present events. But it doesn't matter, because the Bible is to be read philosophically. We're supposed to pull out hidden gems from the text. Just like the philosopher told my friend, when the philosopher gave a speech about Exodus 32, and my friend came up to him and he said, I'm just, I'm just so glad that you take this literally. And he said, I don't take it literally. I just take it seriously. This approach pulls out common themes or concepts and applies it to overriding theology, philosophy, in this sense that they're saying that these concepts, while not depicting actual truth, are depicting some sort of philosophical truth that we could put into our system. And then they could take texts like this and texts in which God are violent, something like that, and they could just say, well, we could get some truth from them. The real authors, they might have believed something, but those authors were wrong, and the inspiration of the text is supposed to be taken in a different manner. We, we could uh, appreciate that view, and if, if you're trying to argue against that view, how are you going to do it? It's, it's going to be a little hard to convince someone who's that's there way that they treat the Bible to try to take it literally, especially if they don't believe in the historical events themselves. If we want to maintain this as a historical incident, I think we do need to take the interaction seriously, that the author of the text and Moses in the text and God in the text all don't think that God has present knowledge of Sodom and Gomorrah. And this is the position that some open theists take. I take this position. Bob Enyart takes this position. Will Duffy takes this position. That God doesn't have to be everywhere at once. And God doesn't have to know stuff that he doesn't want to know. I think Michael Saya also takes this position. That God just doesn't isn't forced to know knowledge. And this goes against dignum dio philosophy. This goes against these overriding concepts, these this negative theology that forces God to have attributes that God can't dispose of. And this is a good way to deal with a text saying God doesn't have to be where he doesn't want to be. But is that what the author meant by this? Or does the author mean that this is God's standard practice, that God has angels? And in the text, in the Sodom text, he sends angels. He doesn't go himself to the location to verify that location to see what's happening. And it's just interesting, the mechanics. And we read about these angels, these eyes, and other passages in the Bible, how they scan the earth going to and fro. And then you have texts like Job, in which all the angels come to God and report their activities. So these are interesting verses. 
And it might be the case, it might be the case that the ancient Jewish idea was that God normally operated like this. God knows everything on earth. Why? Because he sends out messengers. He has eyes that go, observe, and report. The next problematic text that we're going to be dealing with is Deuteronomy 23, 12-14. Let's listen to what's going on here. You shall have a place outside the camp. So we're talking about Israel, and they have a camp, and it's a moving camp. And this is describing what they're going to be doing with their waste. You shall have a place outside the camp, and you shall go out to it. And you shall have a trowel with your tools, and when you sit down outside, you shall dig a hole with it and turn back and cover up your excrement. So you have to bury your poop outside the camp. Why do we do this? Because the Lord, and this is caps, this is Yahweh, because the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and to give up your enemies before you. Therefore your camp must be holy, so that he may not see anything indecent among you and turn away from you. What's going on here, what it reads to me is you got to cover up your poop outside the camp because if you leave it in the camp, God might see it, then he might get mad at Israel and then disclaim Israel. This is some weird stuff going on. Turning back to Exodus 33, we got a very similar text. The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt, to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your offspring, I will give. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And that doesn't happen. In the text of the Bible, that doesn't happen. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. So God had been traveling with Israel. And I kind of get the sense that this is the same type of traveling with that's envisioned in the Numbers text, where people have to bury their excrement because God might see it. Texts like these, it's hard to jive with modern classical theism, where God might abandon people because just they're dirty. They poop on the ground and they don't cover it. Or God gets angry and he says, you know, I'm going to take precautions because you guys are really annoying and if you guys make me real mad, I'm just going to kill you, so I'm going to remove myself from you. That's what the text says. And then notice what God does in response. He says, instead of me, I'm going to send an angel with you. And recall the Deuteronomy 23 text. And he says, because the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and to give up your enemies before you. So the purpose of God being in the camp and moving with them and walking with them was to help them in war. So either this figure that's walking in the camp, either it's being replaced by an angel or the angel is this figure helping them in the war after God abandoned him. I don't know. Michael Heiser makes a very convincing case that throughout the Bible, when it refers to angels, often it's just divine creatures. It's a generic term. And so when Jacob wrestles with God elsewhere, that's called an angel. An angel and God are interchangeable in various texts. So to Moses... Or if Moses only wrote the law portion of the Old Testament and not the narrative portion, to Moses or the author of this particular text, how does God function? How does God give his power to the camp? He seems to do it through an angel or intercessory. It's kind of the same idea 
possibly in the Sodom text as well. Seems to be a reoccurring theme in these earlier texts. It makes it very awkward for us because we don't think of God like that. We think more of like the Ananias and Sapphira that God just strikes people dead. Or in Mount Sinai where God just opens up a big cave and sucks a bunch of people in. You know, we think that God extends that everywhere. So we got to do something with these texts. We got to have some sort of way to understand it. And possibly the Michael Heiser approach is the best way. And he advocates something called the Divine Council. And people could listen to his podcasts. And I advocate that people do that and really understand what he's talking about in the Divine Council. And we're going to talk about another point that he points out in one of his podcasts, the character of Satan throughout the Old Testament. Often it's a messenger from God is called Satan. Anyone who's an open theist has probably heard of Numbers 23 in the context of Calvinists arguing proof texts. God is not a man that he should lie or the son of man that he should repent. But what they don't understand, usually these Calvinists who quote this text, is this is the false prophet Balaam speaking. So their proof text is a false prophet. Bravo. You just quoted a false prophet for your belief. I'm sure that works pretty well for you. But in context, in Numbers 22, let's turn there. Numbers 22, what is happening is Balaam is on this mission. And he's on a mission to curse Israel. And God wants to oppose this. And it says in Numbers 22, 22, God's anger was kindled because he went and an angel of the Lord stood in the way for an adversary. And the word adversary there is Satan. Satan in this text is a messenger of God. And the angel, Satan, in this text does God's will. Kind of casts a new light on the Job text. Everyone takes this Job text as this Satan character is someone that God opposes. Maybe not. Maybe not. Then we flip to 1 Chronicles 21.1. And this reads, then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. And what happens afterwards is that God punishes David. David sins against God. God punishes him. Pretty straightforward, right? Until we turn to the parallel text. It's always important, especially in the Old Testament when we're dealing with Samuel and Chronicles and Kings, to look if there's any parallel stories that describe the same event in a different light. And you find some details and you find some differences that are very striking. So we turn to 2 Samuel 24, 1, and it says, Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against him, saying, Go, number Israel and Judah. So in the Chronicles text, this Satan character is doing this action. And in the Samuel text, God is doing this action. And God is inciting David explicitly in this text. Not only this, but in the text, God is inciting David because he's angry, and then he punishes David for the action that he incited him to do. You see where the problems are coming from, that God is inciting David to do an action and then punishing him for that action. And in the parallel text, it's Satan doing it. I was talking to one Christian, um, someone who loves God, loves the Bible, said, God does not tempt anyone with evil. Okay, well, you can't prove text like that. You can't take a New Testament fleeting statement 
and then slap it on an Old Testament text and say, we got to disqualify and ignore this Old Testament text because we got this New Testament text that we're taking as a universal. Usually it works the opposite way around. Usually you take universals or generals, and those are just generals, rules of thumbs, just general ideas. Like if, if you got a friend named Dave and Dave is nice, that doesn't mean that he can never be mean to anyone anytime. It's just a general statement. So it's more often the case that there's general statements and then there's exceptions to that rule rather than the reverse that people talk in absolute metaphysics when they talk about anyone. And we got this kind of weird double standard when we come to the Bible and we come to these texts about God and God is love. What does that mean? That means that God has to love everyone in the way that I determine that love is. It's just not valid. Then the text follows up. And there's an interesting scene between God and David. And God gives David options for punishment. Because God's mad at Israel. God's mad at King David. And he says, shall there be famine? Or are you going to flee to the mountains? Or would you like some pestilence? And David says, you know, I'd rather take my chances with you, God, rather than with men. And so God sends the pestilence. And God is watching as a lot of people die. 70,000 people die. And then God repents of what he's doing, and he says, it's enough. And he, he tells the angel who's spreading this pestilence not to continue. We could easily see why Christians, even open theists, don't like these verses. Because God's doing something that we don't see justification for. And God's trying to incite someone in order to punish them. We don't know what's happening, or why it's happening, and why the text records it like it does. And all sorts of people die in this text. So it's not like something that is costless in terms of human suffering. There is definite human suffering. And this is plague. So kids are dying. Why are these kids dying? We don't know. And how is God just in inciting someone and then punishing them afterwards? He incites them to find a reason to punish them. That kind of violates our sense of justice. So I really don't blame my friend for trying to trump this verse with God doesn't tempt anyone with evil and then blaming it on Satan. We read Adam Clark and Adam Clark does the same. He says, you know, this is this is all Satan. But is it Satan? Is Satan an agent of God? And if Satan is an agent of God in this text, in the Balaam text, in the Job text, in other texts in the Old Testament, not necessarily the new. Michael Heiser says that the fall of an actual Satan happened in the New Testament, and, you know, that might be a reasonable view, that might be a reasonable view to take, or it might be a reasonable view to take that the Job Satan's an evil Satan. These other Satans would be messengers and agents of God. And we get that sense in this First Samuel and the Chronicles text, the parallels, and how they are worded. We also don't know why numbering the people is really bad. We take a census in America, in the U.S., we number our people. Is it that David is trying to count his soldiers and he's not relying on God? It might be the reason why a census is bad. But why would God incite him to take the census in the first place if it is that bad? we got to do something with the text. I mean, if God is a God of love, we got to square that with how this text is presenting God's actions, God's thoughts, God's activities. So there's a couple ways to do this. You could redefine your standards of what is loving. People disagree all the time about what is loving. Is it loving to spank your kids? Is it loving to not spank your kids? That's a pretty big debate. 
especially in, in the United States. People are like, oh, if you ever touch your kids under any circumstance, then you're not loving. But then they'll they'll definitely endorse the government hurting those parents who do spank their kids. It's a super double standard, but that's a whole nother topic. But is it loving to spank your kids? Rational people can disagree. Both sides can be rational. They could say, you know, inflicting harm intentionally is bad. And then the pro-spanking side might come back and say, well, you're training them for the future. You're creating peace in your household. And you're ultimately saving your own sanity, the health and wellness of your other children. Your other children might get hurt as a result. So there's conflicting views. And it's not quite clear what's the more loving approach. People differ. People are, that are both rational can have different opinions. One way to handle these texts that's different than just redefining our standards of love or morality or justifying God's actions is the Peter Enns approach. And let me read from one of his articles. Peter Enns is a well-known biblical scholar. He has some books out. His books about the Old Testament really undermine the events and the descriptions of God throughout the Old Testament. And just listen to how he writes. Also, I want to point out the fact that the Bible, and in particular the Old Testament, is simply not one single view. It contains a multitude of conflicting views from different authors in different times with different beliefs. For example, some parts of the Old Testament teach that foreigners are corrupting and should be expelled or killed, and other parts say that, in contrast, they should be sheltered and treated with compassion. That's just one example of the pattern we find over and over again in the Old Testament. We don't find a single view, but a record of dispute with differing understandings of what faithfulness looks like side by side within the Hebrew canon. That really means that we must choose between these conflicting views. To do that, we need to think, to question, to wrestle. A lot of people don't like Peter Enns, but his book, The Bible Tells Me So, has some interesting things and some interesting points. And it's worth, I think we host the original chapter. He released a chapter on PDF and we linked to it on our blog sometime in the past. That at least is worth a read. It's free. So I'll go and read that. And he has interesting views about the Bible. And he, I would put on more of the biblical critical side of the spectrum. Because just how he treats the Bible. You notice how he talks about divergent voices. And we have to understand what the differenting authors are talking about. And that's really a biblical critical outlook on the Bible. He doesn't agree with all the authors. Don't get me wrong there. But he's saying that there are these voices and we do need to listen to what they're saying and we do need to use discernment. The next problematic verse that we're going to talk about comes from 2 Samuel. And in 2 Samuel, what happens is that David sees Bathsheba bathing, right? And he sets up all these circumstances to kill Uriah the Hittite. And God sees this. God sends a prophet to him. He sends Nathan. And Nathan condemns David. And David has done wrong. David has murdered Uriah the Hittite. He didn't do it himself, but he set up the circumstances. So he's culpable. And the Bible understands this culpability that extends to just setting up the circumstances for something to happen. There is a lot of interesting things that happen in this text. David's punishment is not his own death. Usually if you had sex with someone else's wife in the Old Testament, that's a death penalty condemnation. If you murdered someone, that was death penalty. David did two things worthy of the death penalty, but he survives. And he survives, assumably from the text, because he's one of God's favorite people ever to live. And that's his saving grace. That's why he gets to survive this. But not everyone survives. God kills David's child. I was talking to my friend, and he's just casually talking, and he says, 
no, it's kind of messed up that God killed David's child. And this is kind of out of nowhere. I was like, yeah, that that is kind of messed up, isn't it? And we read in Ezekiel 18.20, and people often try to trump this proof text. You'll tell them, God killed this kid. God kills kids of his enemies in Jeremiah, for example, here and elsewhere in the flood. A lot of kids died. And they'll try to trump it. Ezekiel 18.20, The soul who sinned shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of his father, nor the father suffer the iniquity of the son. The righteous of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. So pretend you trump a verse. You say, this event in the Old Testament, it violates this general principle over in this other part of the Bible. Therefore, we can't trust what we're reading on face value, and let's figure out a way to dismiss it or override it. I don't think that's valid, and I don't think that's being true to the text of the Bible. And atheists see through it, and they point it out, and they'll have entire websites that describe these contradictions, and they'll kind of laugh at Christians when Christians can't explain it. I think the best way to answer it is, throughout the Bible, these sweeping statements, these sweeping generalizations, they're rules of thumb. They can be violated. They're not like super standards that can never be bended in any situation. That's just not the case. In Ezekiel 18 looks to me, if you read the chapter, it almost looks to me like God is reversing a previous approach. Like in Jeremiah, God talks about killing all sorts of kids of his enemies. And then you see the Ezekiel 18, and it almost sounds like God is reversing policy, whereas he's not going to be doing national punishments anymore, but he's going to be switching to individual punishments. That's what it reads like to me. Talking about punishing kids for the sins of their parents, if we switch to 1 Samuel 15, it talks about two different nations, the Malachites and the Kenites. The Kenites are spared by God because they helped Israel centuries earlier when they're leaving Egypt. But the Amalekites, they opposed Israel when Israel was leaving Egypt. And so that's why God says, I've noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came out of Egypt. Now go down and strike Amalek and devote them to destruction, all that they have. This is generations later, people who weren't even alive at the time getting punished for something their ancestors did. Then again, in 1 Kings 21, 29, Let's just kind of read what God is saying here. Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days, but in his son's days I will bring the disaster upon his house. And this is a response not to like the people's wickedness, but a specific action of Ahab. He's going to skip punishment, and then his son is going to get punished. I'll tell you exactly how I deal with passages like this we got to have a historical perspective when we're reading the entire Bible. What was mortality in the ancient world? How expendable was human life? Would they think about total warfare, hurting the children of your enemies? All those things come into play. And let me read an extract from a very interesting blog post by Experimental Theology. And it's about reading the Bible to people in prison. And those people out there who've been in prison, maybe they could confirm or not confirm. But let me read this and what this guy says. I've read some of the most scandalous passages in the Bible to men in prison or with the poor. And for whatever reason, they haven't blinked an eye. With liberal educated audiences, such passages would be completely hijacked the conversation. He goes on and he says, 
This threw me for a loop at first. I'd get to some passage in the Bible that had something horrible in it, and I'd wait, hunkered down and prepared for the inevitable barrage of questions and outrage, and nothing would happen. On the margins, at least in my experience, people seem perfectly comfortable with the blood and violence and wrath. The Old Testament God isn't much of a scandal in these social locations. We live in a very prosperous world. This is just me now. We live in a very prosperous world, and a lot of people out there have this warped perspective of what life is like and what life should be like. So when they're going back and reading these passages of the Bible, they're trying to project modern standards of living, modern standards of morality, back onto an ancient audience that just didn't have the standards of morality. And there's no reason to think that God needs to be adopting our standards of when to kill people, you know. Myself, I think total war is sometimes very justifiable. And rational people can disagree. Rational people can disagree with me on that. That's fine. But people can make a rational case that total war, even killing children, even targeting children of terrorists. You know what happened in Russia? These these Islamic terrorists, they captured a bunch of Russians. And guess what the Russian special forces do? They just capture a bunch of friends and families of these terrorists, and they just start killing them and sending them body parts, sending the terrorist body parts. And guess what? All the prisoners were released in a pretty quick fashion, because if you're a terrorist, you don't like all your friends and family just dying. It's very expedient. There are so many more problematic verses in the Bible that we just haven't had time to on this episode. If this episode does well, or if people want to know about more problematic verses in the Bible. There's a lot of interesting stuff in the Bible. And that's why it's great to read, especially critics of Christianity, people who don't like the Bible, and they will gravitate towards these passages and make pretty detailed and rational cases against the Bible that we have to take seriously, we have to understand, we have to internalize, and we have to know how to deal with in a non-dismissive manner. But we're out of time for now, so thank you for listening. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to put that on our God is Open webpage itself or start a thread in the God is Open Facebook companion page. Thank you for listening.